Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Asher Marketing Podcast. This podcast is hosted by Asher Agency, a full-service partner to clients nationwide. Asher's services include media planning, creative, digital, and social, website development, public relations, printing and fulfillment, and more. Anything you need to connect with your prospects and tell your story. To learn more, visit asheragency.com or contact us at hello at asheragency.com. Our guest is... Dr. Sudip Parikh. Dr. Parikh, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining me. You came very highly recommended from our mutual friend, Mike Fulton. And that is quite an endorsement because Mike knows just about everyone and speaks very highly of you. So thanks for doing this. Oh, happy to do it. Happy to do it. Well, Dr. Parikh, as you and I have discussed on this podcast, we talk about career path. We talk about your organization and the work that you do. And I want to start with the first of those. You obviously have a pretty big job these days. And I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit about what you were thinking about as a young person in terms of where you might go with your career and whether you followed a straight line to where you are today or if that took some twists and turns along the way. So tell us a little bit about all that. Yeah, happy to. Um, well, maybe I'll start just uh, way back and just say that you know I usually describe myself as a product of uh, three things: the Immigration and Nationalization Act of 1965, mm -hmm. uh, chain migration, and um, the Apollo program, the Apollo space yep. program. Uh, and the reason why I say that is the Immigration and Nationalization Act of 1965 made it to where we allowed immigration of Asians again, uh, yep. which uh, which had not been possible up until then. Um, and so um, in 1965, my uncle was a geologist uh, working in Spain, and he got recruited to work at the uh, Goddard Space Center uh, on the Apollo missions. Uh, okay. They needed a geologist for the Apollo missions. And so he comes over and um, uh, moves to Maryland, and then he invites over through chain migration my father, who's a factory worker. My father's a factory worker, and uh, my my uncle then moves down to North Carolina and um, uh, to go be a professor at Appalachian State University, uh, and that's when my father came uh, to the U.S. and he uh, moved from Mumbai, a city of 15 million or so, uh, to Boone, North Carolina, which had a population of 6,000, and he loved it, and so he stayed, and so. Um, uh, so without those three things, the the law that made it possible for Asians to immigrate here, chain migration, and um, uh, the Apollo space program, I wouldn't exist. And so, uh, so I do uh, I do take that I do take that to heart because my father is a factory worker, and so I'm the I'm the son of a factory of you know, two factory workers and uh, and immigrants. And growing up in North Carolina, uh, I didn't know what I could be. Uh, uh, so I. I, I got through school and um, counselors and others told me that I should probably go to college. Uh, I picked the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill because it had a good basketball team. Uh, and, uh, and tuition was really, really cheap. Uh, it was a really good deal. And so uh, I went there as a journalism major. Uh -huh. okay. And uh, so just to talk about, you know, are there, is it a straight line? Uh, well, the fact that I was a journalism major tells you that now it probably wasn't. Uh, I, I was a journalism major my first year at college, and then my advisor said, why are you taking calculus? And I said, well, I like calculus. And he says, well, maybe, maybe you shouldn't be a journalism major. Yeah, you don't hear that phrase a lot. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> For sure, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so I, I, switched to, I switched to something called material science, or applied science. Uh, and um, uh, while I was there, I got interested in uh, biology. 
interested in how molecules worked. And so I went to a place called the Scripps Research Institute in uh, California for uh, to get a PhD in basically biochemistry. Um, and I moved across the country, moved to San Diego. And again, it was one of those things where I chose it because I could afford to do it. Um, it was they paid for your education and they paid you a small stipend. So uh, so I did that. Um, and then, uh, you know, it was time for me to graduate my Ph.D. and and do what's called a postdoc, where you go and take more training uh, somewhere else. And most people tend to do some training in the Boston area at MIT or Harvard or some, you know, one of those schools. And so I planned that all out. But then um, then my wife uh, reminded me of a couple promises I had made. Uh, you know, when, when I was in, um, uh, when we were in Chapel Hill together, uh, I said, Hey, you want to move to California with me? You got to get a graduate degree. And she said, well, two conditions. One is we get married, uh, because I'm not coming all the way out there if we're not getting married. And I said, okay, to that. And the second was, she said, I picked the second city. So <laughs> you're, you're picking San Diego. I get to pick the next city. And uh, she's a lawyer, so she chose Washington, of course, uh, because that's where that's where lawyers go, I guess. Um, and so we ended up in Washington. Uh, when it turned out I was going to go to Washington, not Boston, I decided that maybe I better do something besides, besides science. Uh, Washington, the main thing to do is policy and politics. And so I I got myself a fellowship to work at the National Institutes of Health as a policy person, as a what's called a presidential management intern, which was basically here's here's a, a small salary. There's the NIH campus. Go find something to do, and um, and I found something to do. I followed around the NIH director, um, and that led through a series of incredible coincidences uh, to um, a detail on Capitol Hill, um, and. Uh, the Appropriations Committee, and I ended up spending nine years on the Appropriations Committee staff, uh, working for Ted Stevens and Thad Cochran and Arlen Specter uh, on the Republican side, and uh, and then the Democrats at the time were folks like Robert Byrd and uh, Daniel Inouye, and uh, and Tom. That was, a, that was somewhat of an advisory role, correct? Helping them understand what issues were important and what deserved funding, what might the priorities be. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. The appropriations committee. I didn't know. I didn't know what the word appropriations meant. It means spending money. <laughs> yeah. I had, had no idea. And so, um, they, yeah, I got the title of science advisor to the appropriations committee. Uh, but you know, I did the work of a professional staff member, which is you negotiate um, negotiate line items in an appropriations bill. And there's thousands of line items that make up a 165 billion dollar appropriations bill, and staff works through each line item, the Republicans, the Democrats on the Senate side, then the Republicans and Democrats on the House side, and you have to come to an agreement. And so that's that's what we did. All right. So and that led you to where you are today, correct? It did. Yeah. So after that, I, you know, when I left the Hill, I went to a place called Battelle, which is a, a large research and development organization based in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, eventually, I ran the health and consumer solutions business unit there. Um, and uh, and then I went to a, a place called DIA Global, which is a, a think tank that thinks about the harmonization of pharmaceutical regulations around the world. Uh, and that led to here, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Okay. So was it your turn to pick a city and you picked Columbus, Ohio? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you know, I, I worked, I worked remotely. I worked here and uh, they had an office in DC and I, 
and I went to Columbus once a month. So. Okay, well, that's great. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a fascinating story, and it is a little bit of a winding road, but but I'd like to focus on on where you are now, and I'd like to dig in a little bit about the organization that you lead, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And, and there is, if I'm not mistaken, there is a little bit of a journalism angle because you're the executive publisher of the Science Family of Journals. So that's a mouthful. So if you don't mind, from your perspective, Tell us about the work that you do in the organizations that you lead. Yeah. Um, so, yes, uh, the AAAS, as we call it, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, um, is a association of scientists, scientists and engineers uh, around the world. It was founded 175 years ago. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an organization that has its roots pre-Civil War in the United States. Um, and it, over the years, it has done many things. It convenes scientists to talk about science and to recognize great scientific excellence. Um, it also publishes what's called uh, Science, a science magazine, which is probably the preeminent scientific journal in the United States. If I, you know, I'd say that with, you know, you should know that I have a conflict of interest there. Um, uh, and as executive publisher, you know, we, we have a pretty large operation. We have probably one of the largest, uh, if not the largest, uh, science journalism uh, group in the, in the world. Uh, so we have uh, an independent news team that, you know, just like with every other newspaper or magazine, uh, as a publisher, they, they get to have editorial independence. I let them write what they want to write, um, and I, I have to work out the business side of things. Uh, and then uh, the rest of the association does things like work on science policy, and science advocacy. Uh, it's a it's a really extraordinary organization of about 500 uh, uh, permanent staff, and then uh, about 300 uh, scientists that go through an additional 300 scientists who are placed as policy fellows all over the federal government, uh, and then a whole bunch of volunteers all around the world. Well, that's fascinating work and, and important work. And I would imagine, and this is probably going to be an understatement, but I would imagine that work has changed dramatically in the last three or so years. Um, tell us a little bit about where your focus is today. What are the priorities? What are you trying to focus on and encourage your team to focus on? Because there's a lot of ground you could potentially cover. You know, we, uh, we you and I discussed right before we hit record that while this is the Asher Marketing Podcast, marketing is the least important word in that phrase. But, you know, there, there's a sense here of, of trying to advocate, trying to promote, uh, you know, the different fields that you represent. So tell us what's most important in that and, and wh where you focus and prioritize. Yeah, this organization has got a really wonderful mandate, and that is that you know we have a vision of what we want, of what we want to try to accomplish, and that is that we want to create a boldly inclusive, mobilized, and global scientific community. So the subject of that is the scientific community. That's what we can create. That's what we can we can reach, and that scientific community can then ignite and enable and celebrate scientific excellence. Uh, and science-informed decisions and actions. And when you when you have a vision like that to create a scientific community that leads to scientific scientifically sound and informed decisions, you get a better world uh, because you start to make evidence-based decisions, not not decisions based on on, on hope or decisions based on um, uh, a feeling. And that is our that is our vision. And so to accomplish that, we've got four really four strategic goals we try to we try to use. The first is the goal that my predecessors 175 years ago would would recognize, and that is to advance scientific excellence. 
And that means, you know, when we um, when we publish in the pages of science arguments between scientists about what the right hypotheses are, that's advancing scientific excellence. When we recognize the James Webb Space Telescope uh, for the incredible amount of awe that it, uh, that, it uh, that it enables, when we recognize gene editing because we know that it can create cures, cures for disease. That's not something we used to talk about as scientists. Now we say the word cure. Um, that's the kind of thing that we're that I mean when I talk about our first strategic goal of advancing scientific excellence. The second is we then foster the inclusion that is an equity that is really um, in, inextricably linked to scientific excellence. It turns out that if you want to if you want to land a helicopter on Mars, or if you want to work on a vaccine, or if you want to develop uh, the next generation technology, uh, it turns out that the teams that do that are diverse. They have people with all kinds of points of view because those points of view lead to better questions and better answers. Uh, and so we, we've recognized that. We made it a part of our uh, strategic focus. Uh, the third uh, goal is to build trust among scientists and their communities. And what we mean by that is, look, if you want to build trust, trust is gained in teaspoons and lost in buckets. And the only way to build trust is to actually show up in your community. And that's one thing that scientists, we, we haven't done well. You know, we, we like to cloister ourselves into our laboratories and in a, around our telescopes and, uh, and learn, uh, learn the wonders of nature. Sometimes we don't like to participate in a PTA meeting, or we don't want to participate in a school board meeting, or we don't want to run for office. And that's something that's very important. We've got we to make sure we do that. So we, so we do that here at this organization in terms of embedding scientists with other parts of their community, faith leaders, um, you know, pastors and rabbis uh, and, and clerics. We want to make sure that, we are, um, that we've built relationships in our neighborhoods. Journalists, policymakers, uh, judges. We have programs that, that embed scientists with judges so that judges start to see uh, what, what scientific evidence looks like. And then fourth is we, uh, we work on science policy. We want to make sure that the policy for science is as good uh, as possible, which means advocating for uh, you know more money for science. It means advocating for uh, uh, more scientific diplomacy around the world. Um, uh, it also means uh, infusing science into decision making, and that's at every level. You know, when a when a county chooses to put a turf field or a natural field at a high school, that decision requires scientific evidence, and so we want to make sure that we're that we're doing that at every level of uh, of decision making. Yeah, well, there, there's quite a bit there to unpack, and that's yeah. that's a great description. Thank you. I want to I want to follow up on a couple things. So let's talk about the 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 advancement of of STEM education and yeah. making sure that um, scientific endeavors and scientific careers careers in science are available to a diverse population. How how is your organization influencing that? I mean, you know, from I'm I'm a little bit involved in higher ed, mm -hmm. and I know that you know one of the challenges with higher ed is it tends to serve really well the upper income families in America, and it doesn't always do a great job with lower income families. When I'm talking about diversity, we're talking about economic diversity. Yep. How how can your organization influence policy? and society so that more individuals have the opportunity to pursue what are what can be expensive college degrees in in yeah. fields that require investments by colleges and universities um what, what can you do to influence that yeah um, oh boy there's a lot along that chain so let's start um let's start real early um 
you know, it turns out that if you're a child, you're going anywhere in this country, it depends on where you are in terms of what the odds are that you're going to get into the sciences. If you grew up on the east or west coast, um, then you've got a better chance at it than if you grew up in the middle of the country. Yeah. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm being, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying it, oh, probably oversimplifying a bit, but that's, uh, that's the case. Yeah. The next thing that happens though, is that what we've got to do is, is make sure that if you are a child growing up in Mississippi Delta, in the Mississippi Delta or the Appalachian mountains or the central Valley of California, that you have access to um, great curriculum that you have um, a sense of belonging in the sciences, which means that you have scientists that that you recognize and are part of your community uh, and that participate in your community. It means um, uh, it means advocating with universities to um, to make science education inclusive, not exclusive. What do I mean by that? So when you graduate from high school, and if you went to a poor high school and you didn't have AP calculus, and then you get thrown into a college environment where Everybody else around you has had AP calculus. Um, it doesn't matter how smart you are. They're just way ahead of you. And it, and a lot of colleges use that as a weed out course, right? We talk about it as a course where you look to your left, look to your right, and one of you is not going to be here uh, come next semester. That is a great way of getting rid of talent because it turns out that not everybody is getting the same, the same uh, basic uh, information getting into school. So what we try and do is say, what do we, what do, we do to make um, education inclusive, where we say, all right, we're all in a calculus class. Now, every one of you is capable of doing this work. We are confident of that. Now, some of you are going to need support to get there. It means you're going to need extra tutoring. You're going to need mentoring from another student. You're going to need um, a time set aside for, um, uh, for, for doing the work. We're gonna, that's the kind of thing that we can advocate with universities for. The next thing is at the at the federal level, we can say we can advocate for more funding for the salaries for graduate students. Graduate students get paid, but they get paid tiny amounts of money uh, at some places and large amounts of money at others. We need to make sure that no matter where you are, you have a you have a wage on which you can live and pay health insurance and uh, and you know not feel like you're you're throwing away ten years of your life. Uh, to go to graduate school and get a postdoctoral degree. Um, those are those are just a huge number of things on the pipeline that we can help with. So that's what we try and do. Sure. Well, and in terms of STEM education, you know, it, it obviously starts very early, elementary yeah. school, perhaps even sooner. <laughs> this is a big question, but how do you make those careers more interesting to kids when, when that work is difficult? Is it making it more experiential so they're actually working on things with their hands? Is it changing the way that we, we educate students? What, what do you think is the, the sweet spot there in terms of making STEM education more appealing to students at a younger age? Yeah. You know, those of us who got into STEM, we, get, we all have a teacher or a person who got us excited about this, who got us excited about what's possible. And a lot of what you know, gets kids excited is being able to work on something that actually makes sense in their world. So can they work on an app that does something valuable for the, the neighborhood in which they live? Can they work on a problem uh, that makes it to where the water that's in the creek next to their house uh, is water they can play in? Can they um, uh, can they look at the life um, at the living things, the living organisms in the in the woods that are near their house, um, and uh, and try and make sure that when the when the bulldozers come two miles away. Uh, that they can help save some of the biodiversity back there because they like going back there. Mm -hmm. And so when you, when you create challenges like that for students, 
that they can work on. And it's easily, you know, an elementary school kid is clearly able to actually make a difference, even in some of those questions. Um, how do you make them a part of it? Uh, give them the chance to actually do science, not read about science. Because when you do science, there's a joy in science, you know, um, that really it grabs hold of you and doesn't let you go ever. Yeah, well, I think there's something really important, a through line here. You know, I may not think I'm interested in science, but if I'm a football player and they're changing the turf on my field, maybe it's an opportunity to introduce, you know, what science really is and how that affects that that student. Absolutely, right? I mean, if I, you know, the first time that I watched a football game on a on a turf field and watched these little black pellets fly up out of the ground, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a question of why is that? What are those? Yeah. What do, they, what do they mean for health? What do they mean for um, uh, for you know, for injuries when I when I hit the ground? And those are things that that science can tell you about. And uh, it doesn't. It's not nearly as um, clunky or maybe even boring sounding as you know the traditional. If a train's coming at you this fast and you're yeah. going this fast, how long till you hit each other? You know, no. But there's very few kids who want to solve that problem. But if you you tell them that there's football players on a football field and you're wondering uh, what's the force with which they're hitting the ground um, after they've gotten a catch, hey, that's a question I'd want to know about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and you know, when I was a kid, I was probably. Um, I, I was I was one of the least interested kids in all types of schoolwork, primarily science um, when I was a kid. And if somebody had asked me, are you interested in geometry? I would have said absolutely not. But if somebody had said, are you interested in why it's easier to steal second base than third base? I would have been interested. Turns yeah. out it's a geometry problem, right? Yeah, I love that. That's a, that's a that's a great one. So, so another uh, another thing that I want to ask you about, and I, I ask this with respect for the fact that it's a can of worms, is the trust issue. And mm -hmm. you know, it's it's kind of amazing to me that in my lifetime that we're at a point where science needs to be defended, where <laughs> we we are in sort of a crisis of of trust in this country in a lot of different ways, but the ways in which it's impacted science. In, a, in a, an environment, a society that's as divided as we are, how do you start those conversations in a way that's constructive and productive to get people united in moving society, um, the humanity forward by looking at scientific solutions to problems and not seeing that as somehow the enemy? I, I know that's a big question, but... Yeah. I have to imagine it's it's on your mind, uh, given what's happened the last few years. Yeah, we spent a lot of time thinking about this and working on it. Um, there are no easy solutions. You know, I wish there were. Um, this is not an ad campaign that's going to rebuild trust in science. Sure. It, that's not going to happen. Um, and, and as I said before, it you know, building trust is you know, you do it in teaspoons and you lose it in buckets. That's true in a, a rate. That's true in your marriage. It's true in a society. Um, and so what we've decided to do here at AAAS is to start building trust in teaspoons. And that means um, that means making sure that there are relationships formed before a crisis. So I told you that we work with faith leaders. Um, what we do there is we've been uh, doing a program called Science in the Seminaries, where we work to put science curriculum into seminaries. So as pastors uh, or future pastors go through their work, they are learning about science. They may not agree with all of it, right? It may, uh, in fact, uh, conflict with some of the teachings uh, of their faith. Uh, but while we're creating that curriculum, we're also building relationships so that now a pastor knows a scientist by name. They've probably had dinner together. 
they've worked together. And it's amazing how that little bit of bonding, a little bit of trust that you build by talking about things that you both care about, whether it's your families, your neighborhood, your city, uh, that can build the levels of trust so that you recognize that you're both at the end of the day, trying to accomplish similar things. And then, then when there is a public health crisis uh, and there is the recommendation not to sing in church, you know, if there's a government official or a scientist you've never met who comes to your church and tells you that, why on earth would you believe them? Yeah. Um, and I, I completely understand that. Yeah. Uh, but if it's a friend, someone you've known, and they're telling you that, you know, at this moment, it's not because we want you to stop singing in church. It's because right now there's a public health crisis uh, that we can combat. Uh, you can do that better if you've got a little bit of a foundation of a relationship uh, already in hand. And so we build programs to do this. And we again, we do it with journalists. We do it with judges. We do it with faith leaders. And we do it with politicians. Um, and then the hope is that the ripple effect from that then reaches out into the community at large. Um, but it's a long-term problem. And it, some of it comes from, you know, scientists are, we're, we're not blameless here. We like jargon. We like to talk in jargon. We like to use big words. And the reason we use big words is because we have to be very precise with one another. Yeah. It turns out you don't have to do that when you're talking to your parents or when you're talking to your siblings who are also smart people. They just never learn that jargon because they've got whatever jargon they work in. Yeah. And so we've got to, we, we as scientists have to be better communicators and better listeners uh, so that we can be a part of uh, a trusted community. Yeah. Well, it all ties into what you said about diversity. You know, you look at what's happened with the acceptance of Eastern medicine, at least to some degree, right. something that people weren't even talking about again well within my lifetime. And it's really, it's really difficult to completely ignore or dismiss information that comes from a neighbor or a coworker. It's really easy to, to ignore that information when it comes from somebody you don't know. So I love what you're saying there. I think it is yeah. the only way we're going to get through this, and it's not going to happen overnight for sure. Yep. It's going to be a lot of work. But, you know, um, I'm optimistic. And the, the reason I'm optimistic is that um, we are living yeah, we're living in a golden age of science. You know, I used to, I used to, when I was a kid, dream about, you know, could I have been alive during the, you know, 1905 and had breakfast with Einstein when he was working on relativity, or 1620 when Isaac Newton was working out gravity, uh, or you know, the the 800s and 900s when there were a whole bunch of scientists in the in the Islamic world who were working on amazing things. But now I realize that the golden age of science is right now. Right now, we are seeing explosions in every field of knowledge, and it's a race. It's a race between those understandings and the progress that can come from them and our disillusionment and disconnection with each other and with science. And so um, I'm confident that the, our better angels are going to win. And, and the reason why I am is because I know there are a lot of good people working really hard at, to rebuild trust and to... Um, uh, to hopefully create a bond between the people that fund science, my mom and dad who are factory workers, and the people that do science. Yeah, well, and, and the analogy to the race, it, it seems like it used to be a marathon and now it's a series of sprints. Yes. You know, the, 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 what I've heard from, from others you know, more intelligent than me is, is all the innovation that was compressed into a short time out of necessity during the pandemic. Um, we had to become a more digital society out of, out of necessity. And what you're seeing with AI and its influence, obviously, I'm a marketing guy, so I think of the influence there, but it's influence everywhere. Yeah. And that that has an opportunity to 
open more doors for the types of collaboration and conversation you're talking about, it also has the opportunity to make people even more polarized. Um, so it's going to be an interesting <laughs> few years to come for sure. It is. It is. And I'm not saying it might not get worse before it gets better. Yeah. Well, well let's hope that's not the case. Let's hope. All right. Well, well, let's let's pivot to some lighter fare. Uh, really, really enjoy this. Um, really love love what you have to say and, and the role you're playing. I, I'd like you to talk very broadly about career success. One of the things we ask our guests on, on this podcast is, from your perspective, what's the most important thing that you need to focus on if you want to build a fulfilling and successful career? Yeah. Um, you know, the fulfilling part is really important. And to me, fulfilling means... Uh, doing something that you actually like. And yeah. so, uh, you, I've often said, don't choose what you're going to do next by, you know, a metric of somebody else, the pay or, um, or the prestige or the, you know, what you think is the, what, what everybody seems to be moving toward. Uh, instead, choose the thing that you like and you care about. Uh, make sure it's sustainable. Like, you know, there are some things that are obvious that are not going to, if you need to have a certain level of income because you got to pay your parents back or you've got to support a family, you know, be knowledgeable about what each career path leads to. But then that's huge. That should be a huge set of choices even then. And, um, and once you've satisfied those basic, uh, those basic needs, then choose the thing that makes you happy. And what I've found is that, you know, they will, it will lead to other things. You can, you can you can have ten different careers before you're done, um, and uh, it's really more about what is the thing that's going to make me happy right now that fits with my particular lifestyle right now. I've got little kids; I need to be able to get home at five o'clock, or my kids are grown and I'm ready to work eighteen hours a day because I want to I want to change the world. Um, you've got to decide for yourself what that is and stick to it for a little while. Uh, don't let others uh, don't let others uh, metrics guide you. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's great. Another thing that I, I'll, I'll mention is, you know, when, when we talk about fulfillment, I think it's important to help young people understand sometimes that's different than happiness. My wife and I were having a conversation the other night, and she said, boy, for someone who loves his job, you seem like you're angry about it a lot. And I said, well, I said, you know, the way you get to fulfillment is through hard work. And there's times when it is difficult, and you're passionate about it. So there's times you do have an emotional response, but it's more of a byproduct. The happiness is a byproduct of fulfillment. They're not one and the same. So that's a, that's a really important distinction. Uh, thank well, you. And, and so the young people who are listening know it's not that you find fulfillment through doing less work. You actually find it through doing more. Yeah. Whenever you find that thing, there are times when you, you want to work you know, 24 hours a day and, and you recognize you need a balance and that you, you need your family and your friends as well. Uh, but boy, there are times when, when you just want to do the thing because it's that exciting, it's that important. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. So um, this next question will provide you with a wealth of opportunities and how you can answer it. But, you know, I always ask our guests about myths or misconceptions in their professional life that they'd like to clear up. What's maybe one thing that you wish people knew or understood differently about science than, than the current understanding? Yeah, you know, it's a worry that I have that, um, folks are starting to see science as one more interest group, mm. more stakeholder, um, you know, that, that just needs to have, have its own set of lobbyists or its own set of marketers or its own set of, uh, communication tools to compete with every other interest group. And that really concerns me, uh, especially when, uh, they see it as an interest group connected with one side or the other. 
Um, you know, I, I, I mentioned that, um, uh, that, you know, I worked for Ted Stevens and, and, uh, and Thad Cochran and Arlen Specter. Uh, those were, those, those were Republican senators. Um, but you know, really I felt like I worked for the institution of the Senate. Uh, I wanted to make sure that, uh, that they had the information they needed. They were the elected members of Congress. They got to make the decision. Um, but we wanted to, I wanted to make sure that, that it was, you know, the real information that they got, not what maybe you want to hear because you have a certain, certain opinion or say certain side of the political spectrum that you're on. And that's that's the that's the myth I want to clear up is that somehow science is just another interest group. It's not. Science is a process for trying to understand the world around us, and it's not always it's not always a, a linear uh, you know a linear uh, a track to getting answers. Sometimes we make progress, and then we our hypothesis turns out to be wrong, and we turn and we change directions. Scientists change their minds all the time. Uh, that's that's part of what we have to do because we don't know the answer right away. There's no, you know, there's, there's no answer key at the back of the book. Um, we're working out those answers on the fly. Yeah, well, and I think that's gotten confused because, you know, it's always the pursuit of more knowledge, yeah. uh, you know, more understanding. And, you know, I'm, I'm biased, but there should, that shouldn't be controversial, but it seems like we've gotten in a position where it is, unfortunately. It, we have, we have. And, and it's something that, you know, part of it is that, we don't do a good job of teaching the scientific process. You know, I, I, I never like the term "follow the science." Um, you know, science is a process. It's not a. It's not a big book of facts. Uh, we don't know all those answers, uh, and we have to be upfront about that. And uh, that's part of the communication work that we have to do as a as a um, as a as a profession is to is to explain. I to explain to engage in a conversation to let folks know that we we know these things for sure. We have hypothesized these things, and we're working out some, you know, working out whatever uh, the next piece of understanding is. Yeah, yeah. All right, one last question for you. Um, in terms of the work that you do every day, I always ask guests if there is a, a tool, a trick, a hack, a shortcut, whatever it is, something. It could be an app. It doesn't have to be digital. Something you use that you think is underappreciated, that is important to you in your work, that you think more people could benefit from. Anything come to mind? <laughs> yeah, um, the telephone. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so I, I love apps. I love technology. I'm a yeah. technology geek. But it turns out that uh, somewhere along the way, uh, I think we've forgotten that there's incredible power in uh, in talking to someone voice to voice. You know, Zoom is or you know, uh, these video conferences are even better, uh, but I'll take voice because with voice in five minutes or 10 minutes, you can get across your feelings about something without ever saying what your feelings are. You can get across uh, the importance of something or the urgency of something uh, without ever having to say it. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly powerful tool uh, and that we, we need to remind ourselves that it is part of uh, it is one of the tools that we have at our disposal. Emails are great. Texts are great. Uh, you know, WhatsApp is great. All these things are important. But our voice-to-voice -voice communication has an important role uh, when you're trying to build a relationship. It, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think the key is to not over-index on the, the things that are convenient, email and text, um, especially when it's a conversation where you want people to understand where you're coming from, from an emotional standpoint, or you want to build a relationship really hard to do. I was just, it's funny. It's another, it's another old fashioned tool 
I, I one of the, my favorite things I get to do in my professional life is I do some mentoring with a Division One college basketball team, mm-hmm. and one of the things that they have in place is a mentoring program with a number of professions, and. I, I encourage them to send a written thank you note after the first meeting, which makes me sound very old fashioned, makes me sound like Emily Post, which I am not. <laughs> but but I tell them, you know, when I walk around my office, I see tacked up on the wall in almost every office, a handwritten thank you note. What I don't see is a printed out email that says thanks. Yep. So, you know, the old fashioned stuff, uh, you know, certainly I love email. I love texting. I love video conference, love all of it, but there's still a place. The hard part in our communication environment is there's so many tools. It's hard to know which was the right one to use, but I a hundred percent agree. There are times when the phone is a great choice. So it's a, it's a powerful thing to pick up the phone and call somebody and spend five minutes. You know, sometimes it's just a matter of checking in. Uh, you never know what the, you know, the power of your voice can do to, to lift somebody's spirits who is on your team. Uh, to get them to follow you. Because so much of what we do is influence. It's not about who, who they report to or anything like that. You're influencing people every day, all the time. And that can be done with your voice and your uh, the sound and uh, and your look. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Preek, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. You do incredibly important work. I know you're busy. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us here today. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And thank you to everyone who took the opportunity to listen to this episode of the Asher Marketing Podcast. We'll be back next time with another great guest and hope you'll join us then.